The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Welcome to the Foundation Podcast. We're the Lorehounds, your guides to psycho history. I'm David. I'm John, and this is our coverage of the Apple TV Plus original series, Foundation. In this podcast, we're going to do a scene-by-scene breakdown of Season 2, Episode 8, The Last Empress. Oh my god, I can't believe we're only two away from the finish. (gasps) Crazy times here. Be sure to stick around to the end of the podcast for programming notes about our podcasting schedule for August and early September. A reminder that you can find all of our podcasts on Spotify and YouTube now, as well as all the major podcast platforms. Speaking of podcasting platforms, if you are indeed enjoying what we do, maybe we'd uh, like to ask you to take a moment to leave us a rating or a review. Um, Apple Podcasts is a place to do it. You know, it's the big SEO engine. And the more reviews that we have up there, the more people can find us, even in the outer reach far, far away. Mm. Uh, for ad-free episodes, early access, and exclusive content, visit patreon.com slash the lorehounds. You can subscribe and support us for as little as $3 a month, or we actually already started uh, free trials, and I saw a couple people taking advantage of that, so you can get a seven-day free trial right now by heading to that site. Yeah, that's a cool little feature that they added. Yeah. Uh, lastly, we love to get feedback, and we love to talk about your feedback. Um, if you like, you've got some theories, if you've got things that we've missed or other fun details, drop us an email. Send emails to empire at the or head to our website and either use the voicemail feature or the contact form. You can also post a message in our discord server and we can include those as well. You can find all those links in the show notes. Yeah. Discord has been hot lately. Well, <laughs> mostly because of uh, we've got two other big shows flying right now. So it's, uh, it's yep. a little bit crazy time. Crazy time. John, we had a very special opportunity. Do you I, to, I don't uh, go by John anymore. Oh, I'm sorry. I go by he who talks to David Goyer. <laughs> well played, sir. Well played. Are you floating around in your podcast studio right now? I am. Yeah, um, in zero yeah, G style. We had such a good conversation with him. Uh, if you don't know, David Esquire, who has worked on a ton of things like the Dark Knight trilogy, like huge projects. He um, he is the showrunner of Foundation and he agreed to sit down with us and talk to us for an hour about the show and his process. And it was a really great conversation. Yeah, it was uh, a lot of fun to, um, you know, peer behind the curtain, so to speak, and and get into some of those details, like actually how do they make the show or, you know, what, right. what, uh, what's in, what goes into his thinking around casting or other questions. Uh, how do you adapt a huge work like this? And it, it was just great. He's such a science fiction and comic book nerd. I feel like if he wasn't a successful showrunner, he'd be hanging out with us on the Discord. 
um, you know, breaking down shows and, you know, talking shop. Yeah. Maybe he is anonymously. We'll never know. (laughs) (laughs) We will never know. When can folks get that interview, John? Yeah, that'll be up uh, probably around Sunday for the public feed. Okay, we will um, we will post it there. Patrons will get it a little early, and uh, yeah, I'm, I had a great time with him. Uh, he's a super nice guy. I'm glad that he sat down with us because I understand this show better just for uh-huh. having spoken to him. He talked nice. a lot about the themes of the show. You know how he pulled those core ideas out of Asimov. How he brought his in his own life. He talked about his own life experiences that affected the show. So yeah, really great, really great stuff. It's so cool too when uh, production folks like that, especially at a high level, for them to be able to come and talk to fandom in a real um, casual manner. Uh, it really has heightened the, the yeah. enjoyment of the show for me just to be able to have that kind of interaction. So I think we're pretty lucky that we get to. Uh, I mean, I know he makes the rounds to you know other places as well, so it's not like it's super exclusive, but just in terms of quality of show and enjoyment and fandom, it's just cool that um, folks get to have that kind of more intimate connection. Whereas usually production people are very far and remote. We never see, we don't really hear unless it's like Hollywood media stuff. And this is, we're not that. So yeah, Mm -hmm. it's very cool. Yep. It was, it was great. Cool. But we're here to talk about the episode today. Episode eight. Episode eight. What'd you think? It was like mind boggling in a good way. In a <laughs> right, good way. Right, good, I, good. I mean, I every time I think I know where the show is going, it's like, no, no, we are going left turn. <laughs> and from our conversation with, with David Goyer, it's gonna keep doing that. I don't mm-hmm. think that we are done with the we're, roller coaster here. No, we're not in a safe space. <laughs> no. We're going no. to be challenged continually. Yeah. Um, it's funny because a lot of the questions we asked, he said, just wait till the end of the season. You know, it's, <laughs> it's, uh, I, I do think he's going to tie it up really nicely, which I, I really like that. Yeah. Um, beautiful visuals of everything. The, the, um, the attack on uh-huh. Trantor was excellently done. Just the, the whole thing felt chaotic and felt mm-hmm. scary to be in. Uh, Becky, Pour one out, right? Oh, man. I am so sad. I was so hoping that we were going to get to see a little bit more action with her. So, yeah. It was She's expensive, a lot- though. <laughs> yes. Yes, I'm sure. Um, it was a lot more um, sexual than I thought it would be this episode. <laughs> oh, really? I think that's the most. I think that's the most um, sex scenes we've ever gotten in Foundation. Is it? I in mean, one we episode. Had- Dusk and Rue, and we had, I mean, Sarath and and uh, Day did not copulate in that <laughs> famous scene. They were rolling around a bit, but I, it's only one scene, right? Ah, with, fair uh, enough. Fair so, enough. Did it, did it catch you short a little bit? It was fine. It was fine. Okay. I didn't need it. I didn't need the constant Hover scene, uh-huh. but it was fine. I didn't like bother me. Or maybe just see them kiss and then cut away and then be done with yeah. it. Kind of. okay. Yeah. Fair enough. It's fine. How about you? What were your thoughts on it? Um, it looks like I won some internet points this episode, so I'm very happy you to did. claim my winnings. Um, Do you hear uh, that? There's a. I hear a beeping in your background. It must be that tr- dump truck coming to <laughs> dump your <laughs> internet right. points. It's in. pulling into my driveway as we speak. Um, I just hope they don't bury my actual car. There's so many of them. It's going to be a I pain. Know. I'm going to have to get my snowblower out to move them around. <laughs> I think we decided on uh, one of our other, maybe it was the Ahsoka podcast that we just recorded for Ahsoka 3. 
that our internet points are good. They're redeemable for cereal. Okay. Right? I think I buy that's that. what our, yeah. Boxes so you win cereal. internet points and you can stomach less well-developed shows. Exactly. Is that what you're saying yes. to me? Yeah, okay. I think that's the way it works. All right. I think that's right. Or you can Your just take satisfaction a in foundation will right. carry you through <laughs> that's right. a couple bad episodes of something I like that. else. That works. Uh, I thought that, um, like you, this, uh, th- I just feel like I'm in a tumble, I'm in the tumble dry cycle of the, of the, of the dryer, right? I'm just getting bounced around, but in a good way, uh, I'm being surprised and delighted. Um, I love how they're all the little mysteries that they're setting up are they're paying off rather quickly. So we're not stuck with a lost yes. scenario or a yes. twin peak scenario, but We've got a little tension built up between, you know, maybe a couple of episodes and then boom, we get an answer. And that's just a really nice pacing. And yeah, the pacing feels like it's uh, ramping up so that when the end comes, it's going to feel earned and we're going to be left bereft and wanting season three. And, you know, so that's all really good television making. So much going on in the show, too, about faith and religion uh, and po- politics and power. I love the deeper depths of this show. It's it's nice to have the Becky running around chomping on people, but at the same time, you can stop and think. And hmm, I wonder what about you know this about politics and religion. So right, or just seeing how small day gets in there. Right, you know, yeah. there's character moments within the violence. There's violence needs yes, to have a reason, good point. right? Mm-hmm. And it had a lot of reasons here, not just a plot driven reason of let's get constant out. But also a let's give Day a new motivation to mm-hmm. do something different than he would have done about Foundation. Interesting. Yeah, because he's been challenged twice now um, with the uh, with his life at the very beginning and then this episode. So he's faced yep. his he's probably faced his mortality than 99 percent of the other Cleons. Yeah. Right. And I think so that's right. Yeah, he's a. Yeah, he's a very different. Uh, well, I I would say that Cleon the I think eighteen who who's the one who got beheaded by <laughs> um, Demerzel. I think I think he oh, might right, win yeah. it. <laughs> he might win the mortality kick. Well, the mortality kick, but in terms of uh, of yeah yeah, he had a pretty traumatic experience there, running around yep. in the city and things yep. like that. Yeah, so that that's a good point. But still, you know, yeah, I think yeah well you know let's apply the violence is the last refuge of the um was of it the, the incompetent weak? right of the incompetent you could apply that to television making or filmmaking in the sense that you can use big flashy explosions to wow your audience but at the end of the day it's empty calories it's like eating cotton candy there's right. no substance to it whereas with a scene like this we've got substance we've got uh we've got dramatic stakes we've got characters putting themselves on the line and we feel it because there's something important to it. It's not gratuitous for, right? Uh, it's not. It's for its own sake. So yes. The Agreed. one thing about this episode is that the scenes get really messy towards the end. Not messy in a bad way, but there's a lot of cross editing, and we're jumping around between storylines. Right, so right. when I did the outline, I had to compact some of the storylines because it was just too that impossible to follow the the timeline of the show. So yeah. Um, uh, just a pre-warning about that. But otherwise, I think we can start to get into some of the, the content for today. Cool. Uh, in terms of background for the series, w- I had uh, laid out um, early on in the series that, you know, oh, we were going to talk a little bit about Asimov himself, and then we're going to talk a little bit about the Foundation books themselves. 
And thankfully, our in-house research librarian and most favorite uh, Tolkien research scholar, uh, who is actually at the Oxenmoot right now, hopefully having a great time. Hi, Marilyn. Hope you're having fun. She's mooting. She is mooting. Um, she did some preliminary research for me, which really helped. And so uh, last episode for seven, we talked about Asimov. And this time around, I've got some information about the books themselves and sort of the context around how they were written. So there are actually seven books in total. The three core books were written between 1951, well, were, were published as books in the way they are now as we get them between 1951 and 1953. Mm-hmm. And that's Foundation, Foundation and Empire, and then Second Foundation. And then they uh, they got him, you know, the publishers were like, hey, can you, you know, revive this series a little bit? So he wrote two sequels, Foundation's Edge in 1982 and Foundation and Earth in 1986. And then he went back and he wrote some prequels to line some things up a little bit more. So Prelude to Foundation and Forward to the Foundation in 1988 and 1993. There is a really great, um, I'll I'll reference this later, but there's a really great, there's a lot of ton of information on the internet. So if you want to just go on the Wikipedia or whatever, all of this sort of is laid out to try to keep track of which books in in what order. Um, These are probably his most famous, you know, what he's most famous for are are these books in in some ways. Um, He apparently conceived and wrote these while he was working at the Philadelphia Naval Yards as a civilian chemist during World War II. And apparently he had sort of a flash of inspiration as he was walking to go meet his publisher one day. Oh, that's cool. And yeah, and it was just sort of like it came to him and then he went went, went from there. And it, remember when we talked about Asimov himself, he was a prolific writer. He's got like over 500 you know books and short stories. and Insane. Just, Probably tons of other writings for articles and newspapers and, you know, popular stuff. So he was nonstop word machine. Um, he's also known for, you know, some of the other books that are he's really famous for are this Galactic Empire series and the iRobot series. And then later he worked to link all those together and he used a particular character, a robotic character, R. Uh, Daniel Oliva as a one one character that he used to thread together multiple plot stuff. Now, I haven't read all that stuff, so I, I can't speak to the accuracy of when and where uh, Oliva shows up, but apparently that's one of the connectors he used, some interstitial tissue to right. connect multiple things. So, interesting factoid, in 1966, the original Foundation trilogy won the Hugo Award, which is a big science fiction writing award, for best all-time series, and guess who he beat out? Lord of the Rings. Oh my god! <laughs> so, I'm not sure I'm with the critics there. Right? Yeah. So it's uh, it's pretty funny, and apparently uh, Asimov is quoted as saying that he's you know very much an admirer of Tolkien, and there was a lot of appreciation from Asimov towards Tolkien in one of his uh, sub series, you know, he's got multiple little series. There's a series called The Black Widowers. And there's a one particular story, Nothing Like Murder, which is a big homage to Lord of the Rings and it factors in some some plot points and stuff like that. Although nothing like murder is not generally well reviewed. 
It's <laughs> oh, one of his better works. So a lot of people say that you can really feel him trying to fit in the Lord of the Rings <laughs> stuff. So trying to trying to make himself something he's not. Exactly. Yeah. So and apparently there's some quote floating around about Tolkien saying how he admired Asimov of well, but Marilyn noted that that's probably unfounded. So, but it just is one of those echoes that keeps repeating across the internets. So uh, it'd be nice to think that, but I don't know the veracity of it. Um, the focus overall, the the themes or the trends, not the trends, but the 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 main stuff that it's dealing with. Foundation is dealing with is looking at the trends through which civilizations might pass using history as a precedent. So, you know, this wider scope of uh, societal evolution, adaptation, time, and it's, he wasn't looking at specific cultural, uh, um, you know, specifics like, oh, you know, this particular culture built this kind of architecture or this kind of style or this kind of music came out of it, right? He's not right. looking at cultural snapshots in time, but at this really huge scale of society evolving and adapting across time and space. And, and what does that look like? And then looking at histor history as, you know, um, precedent and how can we take what we see in the past and go, okay, that's an interesting reflex or that's an interesting mm -hmm. tendency. What would that look like on a galactic empire scale? Interesting. Um, I mean, yeah. it, it, I mean that that's what the show is too. Yes. I, we, we see that all the time. That's Harry Seldon in a nutshell. Um, but it's, it's a cool theme to explore and I'm, I'm, wondering why no one's done it since you know it's it's a broad enough theme where i don't think it would be intellectual property right and i'm wondering well, why uh people i guess the wheel of time kind of does this too but um yeah that's i and i think i think we touched on this in the goyer interview nobody from foundation forward even if you if you're an author and you never read foundation and it's the same with i think tolkien for fantasy in some way you can't escape the influence it's embedded into our understanding of um yeah the, the the space and so we he set a a baseline for what we think of as gal you know galactic spanning empires and humanity out in the stars and whether you're react you know whether you're using that intentionally or reacting against it and not using it you're still it's still right. there right it's still part right. of our thing and, you know, a lot of this, and, and this has been often quoted, that um, uh, Asimov was uh, inspired by Edward Gibbon's history of the decline and fall of Roman Empire, right, in sort of modeling that historical right. structure. And he he was setting out to document, well, what would, what would it look like for a galactic empire to falter? And right. then what kinds of things? And you, sort of using that as that, that inflection point as an interesting um, thought experiment in a way. So there's a link here, John, we can put into the um, show notes, and it's a very old website. It, it looks very Internet 1.0. <laughs> and uh, this gentleman named John Jenkins, who I couldn't find much information out about, but he just seemed like an Asimov fan and was probably a listserv moderator and prolific writer. He wrote this, like, basically reviews of every single piece of Asimov, wow. know, every short story book, whatnot. And it's called uh, The Spoiler-Laden Guide to Isaac Asimov. And it's a really great resource. And, um, you know, if you're interested in diving more into Asimov's writings, go check that out. But he wrote, he, he, this is an observation that, that he is quoted as saying, this John Jenkins guy, 
it has been pointed out that most science fiction writers since the 1950s have been affected by Asimov, either modeling their style or uh, on his or deliberately avoiding anything like his style. <laughs> so yikes. Yeah, we talk about the dryness of of Asimov's stuff. Who you know, and he he was actively in his er, probably the two thirds of his career, he actively avoided using uh, sex, sexuality, human sexual relationships, uh, violence, and you know, you know, big splashy stuff. He assiduously avoided that, and then later on, he he started to incorporate it a little bit more. Um, and so, yeah, this this quote is either you know people are using that or you know, I'm, I don't want to be anything like that. I want to go the opposite way. So right, right. kind of a funny thing. And, you know, relative to the quote that we listed last time about Asimov and his own reflection of his, you know, work, he said, oh, I'm going to be this sort of dry yeah. bones dude. And, yeah. You know, it's, so. it's interesting to me because you have Tolkien who also does not write sex at all, right? He, mm-hmm. he actively ignores that. And yet his relationships feel fully formed. And... Asimov, I think, for the first part of his career, did not nail that relationship part. Mm-hmm. People, I think, I think even Goyer was saying he, the the characters were a little bit two dimensional in the original Foundation books, right? And mm-hmm. it was more about the ideas than it was the characters, and so that's something that I'm really glad they fixed for the show. They have improved that for the medium. Really interesting, too. The the choices that they made to embody these um, tendencies uh, about human history and these big ideas to embody them in, a, in like the Cleonic dynasty, like really creative choices. And I think that's some of the, yeah. for me watching this show, that's one of the things that I'm really enjoying is how they've made these choices. Right. Well, cool. I yeah. think um, it's time to get to the episode, but we do have our reminders. We do. We get some uh, open question things too. Oh, well. yeah, the open questions. I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I think um, I think one of your open questions was closed by David Goyer. <laughs> Do you want to you want to hit me with that? <laughs> you want to hit us with that? Um, you can make fun of me. I almost want to save it for the interview. Okay, but uh, <laughs> let's just say Markley's not going to happen. No. <laughs> yeah, check out the interview because uh, Goyer has a funny uh, says something. We had funny a good laugh that. with him. Yeah, he poked good. fun. All right, so we're still considering who who tinkered with Day's aura, and what about the blind angels? We don't know. We still haven't. That's one mystery that has not been paid off. We've got no new evidence on it, observable evidence. I mean, maybe there's some embedded stuff, but I'm not seeing anything about those. Um, we still got an open question about the Prime Radiant. Is it actually sentient inside, or what is the sentience inside that spoke to Harry, we've got a lot more about super positioning and how Harry knows what he knows uh, in the vault. Dr. Selden, I should say. We can call Dr. Selden maybe the guy in the vault and Harry the guy who's no longer outside the vault, I guess. Um, we don't know anything about Kale and how Harry was made real. So that's another big mystery. Uh, yeah, I'm <laughs> going down the list here, and here's the scars on the face of Markley. Who is he, and what does he want? Well, <laughs> go turn. He turn wants in. you to forget about him. That's what he wants. <laughs> um, Josiah is he more of a bit part, or he's the mule to be? I'm not thinking that he's going to be the mule. Um, I don't. Think it, I, I don't right. think it makes total sense if he's yeah. the mule. So, and then uh, this question of uh, Salvor and, and Harry, are they really dead? Well, we now know that Salvor is not really dead. 
So that's partially answered. And then um, one last little callback before we uh, jump into the uh, production notes and, and into the episode proper. Uh, atomic ashtray. So uh, Foundation gave uh, Empire an atomic ashtray. Uh, that's a thing in the books. And so they deliberately pulled that up as a funny to place into um, that's funny, this yeah. show. Yeah. yeah. Because early on, thing. Asimov, you know, when he was writing this was, you know, it's like, oh, atomic everything, you know, atomic clocks, atomic dishwashers, atom- you're right, atomics were going to power everything. And so the the fact that they actually had an, an atomic ashtray in the original books and that they gave it to him in this was uh, pretty funny, I think. Yeah, that is fun because it's it's something where, you know, I think the world thinks about something like an atomic ashtray the same way Day does in his right. reaction. <laughs> He's like, what the WTF? All right. Well, let's give some production notes before we head into our break and then the uh, episode breakdown. So the production notes are you read the books a long time ago, never finished them, and you haven't read a lot of other Asimov, although now you've done your research on Asimov or at least relied on Maryland's. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, I feel like I should do some uh, more reading in the in the off season, but who knows? Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Now, now I'm really intrigued by this world a lot more. Yeah. I finished the first book. I didn't go any further. I now after after talking to Goyer, actually, I really want to go further mm. because he made me more interested in what the books have to say. Cool. Um, we do have screeners. We're not running ahead, so we have not seen episodes nine and ten yet. Uh, so sometimes feedback might be a little bit delayed because the episode will have aired um, later than we recorded. Uh, you are listening to the official podcast and some other podcasts, but after we have podcasted, so. Uh, probably on the next episode, you'll bring in takes from this episode's podcasts. Yeah, if there's anything of particular note uh, to to bring forward, but yeah, right. We want we want your takes fresh from our kitchen. So hot takes on your hot cakes. All right, David, it's time to take a break. And we're back. David, can you lead us into the scene by scene breakdown? Absolutely. And just a reminder, towards as we get towards the end of the episode, things get a little messy. So I'll, I'll call it out when I've combined scenes. Um, so we start with uh, Rue snooping around Demerzel's room and she's discovered by Dusk. She reveals that she has her memories and Dusk can't seem to get past a gap in his memories about Demerzel. They notice some inactive chroma on the one of the murals in the mural hall, but then they're called away for the executions of the drunk and the monk. John, yeah. this whole time I thought we trusted one another, but apparently <laughs> you just thought I trusted you. <laughs> That's exactly. such a good line. That was good. You know, turning on its head about him. The dialogue is just much better this season, and oh, it's been yeah, really great. It's fire. Uh, and it keeps getting better. So it's 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 getting really Game of Thronesy in these duel of words kinds of conversations. And, you know, just to harp on the strike thing a little bit, it's, you know, this is not chappy, chat GPT style writing. This is, you know, people who've thought about it and agonized over these words. What does it mean to the characters? Right. And and when a, a line is spoken that has that kind of truth to it, it rings. It sings out. And I, I just... 
really appreciate the writers for their craft. And when they are working in a room that's supportive and has a vision and, and everybody's working at their best levels, a quality show is unparalleled, right? You can just tell, right? You can quality knows quality kind of thing. Yeah. Game knows game. Yes. That's the word. <laughs> that's that's what the ki- the kids say. I really, really loved this whole refrain where he's stuck in this loop that seems yeah. to be shutting down his memories. Mm-hmm. It, again, this show takes itself in directions that I don't expect, and it takes me there faster than I thought it would. Mm-hmm. Because I thought this was going to be a multi-season arc of what's going on with the Cleons and their memories and their cataphils. Mm-hmm. But now I have dusk just figuring out what's going on with him right away and you have rue showing her hand and saying we have figured out how to solve this let me help you the i got really i was surprised when rue uh it was like she kind of effed up a little bit she's like oh crap and then she like instantly turned it and turned him into his ally i don't feel like she went in knowing that she was going to tell him that no no. And and as it kind of as a, in an intimate conversation and whether she actually has feelings for him or she's ultimately manipulating him and still has feelings for him, um, that she was able to take that um, screw up and turn it to a big strategic advantage. So cool. I yep. love the Rue. I love Rue as a character. I, I really will be sad if we don't see her in future seasons. But, you know, that's the way the show goes. She's very politically savvy, and I really, I really enjoyed how she sort of used this, this insecurity of Cleon, of, mm-hmm. of this dusk, of I don't remember, I can't figure out why my memory is blocked at this point. And she says, "Well, I can fix that for you." She makes herself his savior in that moment, yeah, and makes it so even if he doesn't trust her, he has to go to her, and he has to go along with whatever she's doing. Yeah. Yeah, so good. Have you ever um, had an experience with somebody who's had a head injury or even temporary or, or long term? I mean, I've dealt with dementia uh, in, in my family. Okay, so yeah. So it's yeah. it's a really weird thing. I had a, a roommate of mine who got hit on the head and he kept repeating like all day until his brain sort of rebooted itself. You know, what time is it? What day it is? We ended up buying him a newspaper so he could look. Because he just kept asking the same questions over and over again. And it was just the weirdest experience. Because we didn't, we were kids, we didn't <laughs> right. know what was going on, right? Right. Um, and so, yeah, it, it is just a creepy thing when somebody, when you see another being locked in a loop like that. Yeah. Well, I hope he went to the hospital because uh, he did. He well, yeah, he came home from the hospital and we, we just started to babysit him for, you know, a day. And then the next gotcha. day he was fine. So oh, that's good. Yeah. Good to hear. Uh, Terrence Mann, just, oh boy, what a performance to do that, to play I th- with that I think that you left line. out a middle word, Terrence the man. Terrence the man. <laughs> uh, just incredible. Yeah. So, so good. And and so interesting, too, that to, to think that the Cleons could be pr- programmed in some way like Demerzel is in some ways. They do seem to have figured out human memory unless everyone's a robot maybe everybody's a robot and we just don't know <laughs> i don't know they maybe they won um more little technology that they're introducing so we have the shadow master silencer uh and i guess it's some sort of you know it's not a visual cloak it's like an auditory cloak and so when uh, rue is walking around in demerzel's room there's a scene there's part of the scene where she plucks the a string on a harp 
Yep. And the audio, it, it just goes, right? It doesn't, we don't hear a, a high sharp note of that. So really great way to signal how the technology is, is working. I thought it was really cool. Yeah. And a couple of things in, in Demerzel's room. There is her old dress from last season hanging on one of those little, you know, mannequin things that like one that had the little frill on the top uh, instead of this armor piece that she has now. Right. What do you you like better? You like the armor piece? You know, I don't think it's a question of what I like better. It's what's fitting the storyline. And Mm -hmm. and in this storyline, the armor, it's it's harder. It's more it's signaling more of a. Uh, right. violence happening, beautiful violence, like a velvet fist, you know? She, like yeah, she a- felt more servient last season, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. And now she is in charge. Like, Way she is clearly the, the mama of these Cleons. <laughs> she, she, is, is, she is the last empress. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Title. So so David Goyer also answered a question about who, <laughs> how many how many uh, Cleons have, uh, let's say, bedded Demerzel. Right. His answer surprised me. So let's, uh-huh. let's save that for the interview. Okay. <laughs> Tease. So anyway, we see the old dress. We see the flower from season one, right? That um, Day modeled his vision of, of when he saw the triple goddesses on there. And then the harp. And I guess um, I, I have no idea what the harp r- relates to. Is just a cool thing that they found or if that's you know just part of her, her past. But it was cool. And then obviously we have the toolbox with the solar system on it, and we linger on that for quite a while. And that solar system map matches the um, map on the mural wall, which then um, has won me a whole ton of internet points. So (laughs) there you go. Yeah. Uh, Then we got this great dissolve into the mural hall in the second part of the scene where they see the inactive chroma. Mm hmm. And, um, you know, uh, day or sorry, dusk talks a lot about the robot wars and he's a, is sort of interpreting the mural in this really, um, ornate sort of over acted yeah. way, which is really great for his character. Cause that's sort of the vibe of his character. Right. I, I really like when they make art part of the analysis of a character because, mm-hmm. you know, you see that with Sabine in star Wars and I think it's the same with dusk here. Mm. And they've been telling us since season one that the Dusks, like their whole life is just the art now. They right. don't have anything left other it, than the art because uh, I, I guess they get put in charge if Day is away, but uh, that doesn't happen in this episode. No. Yeah. He <laughs> quite pointedly so too, right? <laughs> right. Gets, um, uh, kind of backhanded. And I love, and I love how, how Dusk is, is really like put on the back burner here. When day is literally, uh, uh, sorry, dawn is literally the one who's trying to sleep with day. <laughs> right? Yeah, I'll I'll take care of her while you're away. No yeah. problem. Yeah. No big deal, guys. No yeah. big deal. I got her. Uh, so we get um this reference to the first law of robotics being circumvented, which is a fascinating thing. So they're they're playing with that. And this idea that the robots rose up because they just wanted the one thing, you know, that any sentient life it wants, which is to have to be recognized for their personhood. Right. And so we talk about droidism in uh, Star Wars. (laughs) You know, what if the droids ever rose up in Star Wars? It would not be a, a pretty scene. And I think that's what they are inferring in this is that when the robots rose up, it was it was a brutal, brutal war. Not a great time. I mean, C-3PO really led them to victory. 
Chopper, their chief war criminal. Well, Cho- yeah, Chopper would probably be the general there. <laughs> right. I can see that. <laughs> Head of special forces. Um, and then just the last note for me is the the green on the mural that was inactive, that the, you know, Dusk, the old master, yep. as they say, that was the same green as from episode five this season when day or sorry, when dawn and dusk are down in the memoriam and they're talking about stuff, they uh, looked at Emperor uh, Algren, a, a mural of him, and they talk about the graven stripe, the betrayer, the traitor, and that that's what that color green signifies. Well, it looked like on this, that was also that same green, you know? So, oh, yeah. Interesting. I like it. And then we just got to talk about the the fact that yeah this this solar system is the Earth solar system and then that figure that's underneath it is a a, a robot and it's all part of the mural of the uh, robot wars themselves so good stuff absolutely all right on Ignis Tellum takes a moment and then is confronted by Gale who learns that uh, Tellum has killed well Tellum confesses that she killed Harry. And then we learn the truth about the reality of Salvor and Gale's situation. Josiah sees the truth of Tellum's condition and then runs away. John, please, no more babe in the woods from you. (laughs) (laughs) I love Rachel House. She's really great. Um, This this whole, you know, Hannibal Lecter situation is uh, pretty spooky, Um, especially when... She can she can get into your mind, but you can't get into her mind, right? Like mm-hmm. she 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 could just create whatever reality she could put you in hell if she wants to. You there's no one who's ever been at more a more vulnerable situation than these people are right now. It's really wild to the 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 depth of which the fantasy runs. It's not just masking somebody, but like your physical reality is altered. You you cannot right. trust your senses. You cannot trust your memory. Uh, that's an interesting thing that we, we talk a lot about in the show too, is, is memory. And so what is re where am I now? Where was I before? And, you know, helps me predict where I'm going to go, which hasn't happened yet. But if you can't trust your memory and your, you know, your immediate physical surroundings are not reality, that has got to be a terrifying sensation. Well, my question is, why doesn't she just have one of the members of these mentalics next to them all the time to give them a different reality and make them think that they're not in captivity. Mm. Or maybe it's that Tellum is the only one powerful enough to do it since she has, now we know that she has the powers of many. Right. Yeah. It it sounds like too, from, from what I remember just picking up from other stuff in the episode, um, there's, you know, there's, there was a line about strength in harmony that they're stronger together and with their together. So I think she's, you know the the community at large is helping maybe maintain the uh, the illusion for them around them. So I mean, I, I think that them. it's a it's a greater good thing, right? That's mm. that's the uh, that's what they're thinking. Oh, that's that's another movie I got to put on our on our twist movie list. Anyway, uh, I'm thinking out loud about Second Breakfast. Everyone, all right, mm, I'm getting hungry. Yeah, I I, I think that Tellum is probably orders of magnitude more powerful than everyone, and sure, they yeah. see her as basically their mentalic messiah they see her as yeah, it's yeah. almost like the way that targaryens were viewed in game of thrones as mm-hmm. above the religion even mm-hmm. above the rules of the religion they were allowed mm-hmm. to marry their brothers and sisters nobody else was it's it's uh yeah it's it's this kind of 
putting someone on a pedestal to the point where you have a bad player come around on that pedestal and you are having a problem. Right. Right. And I love this idea too, of bad guys who seem reasonable or they have an understandable logic. Like I can understand where, um, tell is coming from. She wants to protect her people, but then that's turned into this monstrosity and she, she's using right. her godhood to, to cannibalize and violate people. I mean, we had, Oh, here's an interesting thing. We had Harry masking as constant, right? And, and yep. they even comments, Oh, well, there's a nice violation. And here we have tell violating people by stealing their bodies, you know, she's violating people all over the place, all over the place. So uh, that's very, it's a really interesting, but yeah, she's such a compelling bad guy. And I love, you know, bad guys who have a, a reasonable starting position, even though their methodologies are, are often monstrous. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what, a last little thing on this too, this whole little, these little dishes with their psychic pitches, the, um, it, it, that, that everyone has, there's this cosmic song, right? You know, I've got my uh-huh. little thing and you've got your little, and then when we're together or in harmony, we can do things. And it just really made me think of, um, uh, Arugula's uh, song. Sorry. Uh, uh um, the, why am I the, blanking the, the name music of the creator? Of the Einor. Yep. Yes. The music of the Einor. Thank you. Uh, and yeah. just that, this idea that harmonics and melody and music and when, if they're dissonant chords or, you know, resonant chords are coming together and, um, right. Well, the, the, you know, as a trained audio engineer back in the day, um, that is a thing with sound, right? You have, you have a a phase of the pitch, which is when you look at the waveform, whether it's Uh up or down. Mm -hmm. And if you have an exactly out of phase wave playing at the same time, it will be nothing. That's just how phase works in sound. That's a real thing. Right. So this idea of okay, there's a there's a physical pitch to your mental signal, mm-hmm. and we're going to play something a hundred percent out of phase so that it becomes nothing. Um, you know, if you have it, it's the same. It's the same pitch at the same volume in the same phase. Then it's it's just going to be nothing. Wow, that's that's cool. It, it makes me think of a piece of feedback that we got for our Ahsoka podcast and what's going on in, in Ahsoka about like null potential nullification of the force, like creating these bubbles yeah, where whatever is inside the bubble, it doesn't exist or doesn't have agency or power, um, beyond that bubble. So it's cool stuff on terminus. People gather to witness the broad beam of the execution Constance, two dads drink to fortify their nerves. And we fade through the broad beam to Trantor itself, where we see a small host gathered at the palace for the execution. Bell, Glaywin, and the rest of the fleet are also watching. Day introdu- introduces us to the collar of Typhon, and Demerzel notices something wrong just before, um, uh, what's his name, Hober jumps in. Yeah. Um, Demerzel is the MVP saving the Cleons over here, I gotta say. <laughs> yeah. I loved, uh, I loved her laying on top of him. It was such an awkward thing. He's like, "Get off me!" Right? Uh, you know, right. she was, she was, uh, she was. Yeah, it was just a funny visual. It was great. And and not only that, but we get the portable guillotine, which is uh, really fun. I, I I what a fun idea of of beheading people, right? You get a, it's <laughs> it's cute. It's a little ring, and you just put it over there, and you're all done. It's clean. Yeah. 
uh, although we, so we've gotten two interesting execution methods here. We had Titan's prick earlier yep. on, and yep. now we've got the taller collar of Typhon. Did you catch that little uh, cutaway where they had people burning books on Sowena? No, I did not. I, that must have been very quick. Yeah, it was that um, at the patrician's house, all of that that sort of mob scene, and they were taking as they had a you know the broad beam floating there, and they were okay. cleaning out the patrician's house and bringing books to burn on a pyre. So it to me it kind of signals a you know descent into barbarism on the outskirts of the uh, in, you know in the outer reaches. But are they doing that in protest of empire or foundation? I guess is the question. I think they're just doing it in I mean, both. Maybe they're just like f y'all. We're we're Suena. We're gonna ha-, you know we're, you know foundation is proved to be you know, uh, uh, charlatans and empires in here. So, you know, we're just going to get rid of anything that is not related to our immediate life and survival. So. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, other things in this scene, um, Polly apologizing to constant Mm. was really heartbreaking. Yeah. Yeah. And where is Harry? He's not going to come out and be like, yeah, I'm the one getting executed. Oh, I think he's gone. I think they zapped him when they. Okay. Uh, he's, he is the gone. Okay. Yeah, he's gone. Okay. So it was interesting to see all the people that were assembled in front, uh, the different ranks, uh, you know, in the, in the scene. And I'm just curious if that was supposed to be, cause they were all di- wearing different robes and different colors mm-hmm. and, and different sort of styles. And I'm wondering if that sort of, some sort of proportional representation in the empire. Like, okay, you know, we've got 500 people uh, uh, here and 30% of them are triple goddess and 20% are this religion over here and 15% are that, you know, philosophy over there or or what. But it was a nice, you know, this idea that, you know, empires gathering representatives to witness this. And and again, using violence as a um, sociological control. Right. Reminding right. folks that if you step out of line, this is what happens. Well, it's I would be pretty scared of the guillotine ring, too. <laughs> yeah. And boy, just Lee Pace is a god in this scene. He is so his acting in this season has just been really extraordinary. Great, yeah. So he puts on all these different faces when, you know, not just when he's different Cleons, which I think is another great thing he does, but also just one Cleon in different settings he does yeah. a great job of, of playing the variations of what does a cleon addressing the crowd look like in this era mm-hmm. compared yeah. to in the bedroom being awkward with sarah oh my toe which again <laughs> one of the funniest lines of the season and then the um close-ups as uh constant is repeating her prayer uh you know guide me through the darkness and then we get all the close-ups of her family and various people it just a really moving scene so that when, when Hober does pop in and, and Demerzel's like, she can, you know, her, her cat hairs start to tingle. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a real blow, right? It's a real energetic blow to us as the, as the viewers. It's right. really well paced and structured. So definitely. All right. Just before Constance is executed, Hober jumps in with the spirit rising right next to the palace in the chaos. Hober evades fire, rescues Constant. Day rescues Sarath and Dusk rescues Rue. We lose another beloved character, Becky. And on the spirit rising, Hober gets the collar off and they jump away. 
Bell and Glaywin then reflect on the situation. Was it Dawn who rescued Sarath? I'm sorry. Did I? I probably said got day, that. but yeah, I just wanted, yeah, I wanted I, to double check. I but yeah. I sometimes right. yeah yeah. My brain yeah. I know it's, it's a, it, the day and dawn do bleed together. Yeah, uh, and just trying to remember you know, this is one pace. person. Let's just be three, honest. Who he is? I, the the Trinity, right? We've got a Trinity right. here, so right. it's very very nice. Right. Everyone's taking who they care about, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I thought that was some nice things. You liked this scene overall? I did. I thought it was a fun. I you know there was a lot of funny stuff going on here, mm-hmm. but also it felt like real stakes. It felt like I thought that this day could have died here, and that would yeah. have been a reasonable outcome of this. And would have changed the stakes of this show. And I, but it also made sense that he didn't die. You know, like I, I really do think, especially watching Demerzel save day, you, you realize how much of a hold she has on him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Even though he's going to do what he's going to do. Right. He's going to make out with Sarah. um do you think that this is chipping away at bell's resolve for his dharma for his ability you know his like good question sworn sworn to empire um is this an erosion of his steadfastness i think it could go either way of radicalizing him of Mm -hmm. maybe i maybe this is not going to work out and maybe i should be on the winning side here Mm. or he might go well these fuckers just attacked us Let's go to Terminus and mess him up, mm-hmm. which he's ordered ultimately ordered to do. Right, uh, but, which, but you know, as a as a general, you attack my capital, and that that is an act of war. It's reasonable for me to go attack your capital now. And Glaywin does say, you know, look, uh, um, Empire is vulnerable; like they can be touched. Yeah, uh, and Foundation has that technology. Oh, he's to do he's that. already a rebel. I, <laughs> I don't know how they they must be watching them, and I don't know how he's not dead already. Yeah, it, it is kind of perplexing in in that regard. Where where are the commissars? Where are the political officers? Where are the deep fake spies in the fleet keeping an eye on on people's loyalties and stuff? Unless so. Glaywin is set to uh, test him. Yeah, and I think test that was something uh, people had theorized earlier on. Is is well, what happened during that long period of of when Bell was right. mining uh, Obelisk? And, he didn't um, freeze in time. Yeah, no. So, and why didn't they work on him and turn him into a, a double agent? But anyway, um, we'll see what happens. Right. All right. In the palace throne room, Day announces that he's going to go to Terminus to talk to Foundation, which surprises everyone. When challenged by Dusk uh, and Demerzel, Sarath backs him up. Day gives control of Trantor to Dawn and then implores him Dawn to keep Sarath safe. <laughs> this was a real backhand to Dusk. Yes. And you could see it on his face. He's like, oh, I am going to get you for this, man. <laughs> and it, I think it fuels his, um, uh, you know, I mean, Rue's already got her hooks into him and they're already sort of, but I think it it, it fuels his, revo- steals his resolve. Right. You know, like, I, I mean, guy. Every, every step along this path, that day has set led dusk through only makes him feel more alone and more mm. like he needs allies and more into the arms of Rue. Right. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. This, and he's being relegated to the dustbin of history yeah. anyway. The so dustbin. yeah, 
Yes. The dusk bin. <laughs> Did you see when Sarah stepped up, she gave uh, Demerzel a little shoulder check as she brushes past her? I thought that I love was it. a brilliant little I move. I love it. She's great at the at the body language and the, yeah. the physical acting. Yeah. Good stuff. One of my one of my greatest moments uh in being a New Yorker was, you know, coming from the West Coast, uh, you know, where we're all nice and stuff was learning to shoulder check people in the subway and do a kind of sorry, not sorry when you stop to look at your phone at the top of the stairs. You know, yeah, that's, <laughs> like, uh, totally inappropriate. Not a good move. I haven't no. shoulder checked someone there because I'm scared, but I see. <laughs> well, I learned. Were. See, that's the thing. I've learned to do this little brush pass uh, where I can look over my shoulder and go, sorry, not sorry, and and move on. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, I, I love that her little like, you know, sorry, you know, Demerzel, you know, this you're 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 out of sync here. You got to listen to what your man, your your lord and master is saving. Mm-hmm. So, question: Is it cheating if they're not married? Uh, yes, because they're engaged. Uh, you you okay. shouldn't cheat on your fiance either. No, you shouldn't. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and this, I love this line that uh, uh, leaking blood and stars again. Great writing and and great words. You know, septum and scepter. You know, playing septum and scepter is another line that Sarah has. And here she says, yeah. "Leaking blood and stars." So. It's, you know, literally, he's literally leaking blood in that scene. So, yeah, that was that was a cool metaphor, I guess. Uh, So uh, Day's flagship is called the Rubicon. And for folks who might not be so familiar with uh, Roman history, Mm -hmm. uh, the Rubicon was a river in Italy. And during the Roman Empire, generals who were also governors, there was sort of this political difference we don't think of in the same way. But they were not allowed to bring their armies south of the Rubicon. Uh, Otherwise, it would be an act of war and treason. There's a whole process of disbanding your armies, and you you could come into the city, but you just had to be a citizen. Uh, But in 49 BC, uh, Caesar, Gaius Julius Caesar, brought his armies south of the Rubicon, which sparked civil war. And then he ultimately calls, you know, uh, declares himself emperor. Lots of history uh, around Mm -hmm. that. Uh, But it was interesting that his flagship is uh, called the Rubicon. Well, so. especially, you know, we have the expression today based on this crossing the Rubicon, which is basically just you're at the point of no return here. Yeah. You've, you've crossed this th- threshold where you can't go back from. So I guess if you see the Rubicon in orbit above your planet, you fucked up. <laughs> yeah. And I'll also, I think right now there was if they did an investigation, they might figure out that this was not an act of war, but a rescue mission. Uh huh. Right. If they go to foundation and immediately attack, well, now it is a war. That is crossing the Rubicon. Mm-hmm. Right. There's no pulling back from this now. Empire can't look weak when they right. they say they're going to go to war and then don't go to war. Right. So I really do like the uh, the choice of the ship name. I think it works. As Day boards his shuttle, Sarath and Rue discuss the situation. They argue about who loves who, and Rue reminds Sarath to think of Cloud Dominion, Sarath reminds Rue who is in charge. Wife and widow are both called Empress. Love it. Love it. Yeah. Um, their spat here was really great because it really set out the motivations. You know, you're well, you 
even if you're not, you're going to be, you know, <laughs> <It's>, uh, <laughs> this, this whole, like, you, well, you need to hear my lecture either way. And then this, this lashback of, well, you're in love with, with dusk. And she, I, I don't agree with Rue that it doesn't matter. I think that does matter. They're still all Cleon. They still mm-hmm. all have dinner together every night. <laughs> uh, it's going to be a problem if you can't, if you have conflicting loyalties and motivations. Yeah, dinners these days must be really awkward for the Cleons. Yeah. So, so which Dominion was in which bed tonight? What what's uh, right? They're, they're, <laughs> they got to catch up on who's been with who. Right, and it's been interesting to see Sarah master herself over this. She comes in really confident, and she's um, kind of a not an iconoclast, but she's uh, got a little chaotic edge to her, and she's trying to upset and challenge and and push boundaries, which uh, is a you know more common behavior among you know young people, younger yeah. people trying to figure out their place in the world by pushing boundaries. And uh, at the same time, she's playing a game that is huge. She's playing the ultimate game. Uh, and she's had trouble mastering herself in, in some circumstances. But she's when she says to Rue, uh, hey, sister, you know, I appreciate the frank talk here. But remember, I'm the queen and you're right. my right. you're my retainer uh, and don't forget it. And, and Rue just heals right into line there. Well, I mean, it's tricky because you become friends with somebody, and and I think that Rue trusts Sarath the same way Sarath trusts Rue. I think Rue probably played a big part in Sarath's recovery from her grief mm-hmm. and Sarath's development into a ruler, and it's kind of probably heartbreaking for her to have this woman who's probably like a daughter to her in a lot of ways. Totally. Snap back at her and assert, well, no you may have helped me get here, but that's that, you, right. you know, that's done. Now I'm here and you're there. Right. Right. Yeah. And it's that tough. It's a space between them and beautifully acted by, by yes. both these actors. So, yeah. All right. Combined scene here. I'm going to squish some stuff together on Ignis. Josiah brings Salver for some food. She's alive. And we learn that Gail is being brought to the table. Uh, Selver figures out how to use the Prime Radiant to talk to Dr. Selden back on Terminus. In the Prime Radiant, Dr. Selden works out the situation, and Salver tells him a lot of stuff and implores him to help her. Salver shows him the dishes back in on Ignis, and then they make a plan. Salver invokes Hobermallow's name and then uses, uses the dishes to break out of her cell. So that's a lot there, because it all was yeah so it was timey-wimey the whole time it was way timey-wimey a passing ghost told me the name hober mallow that question has been answered as as i i heard the check mark be clicked when i saw that scene (laughs) because we now know who the passing ghost was that's right uh i i really like harry here figuring out Oh, well, why would I withhold this knowledge from the only version of me? Oh, my God, I'm not the only version. You know, this it really felt genuine. I mean, Jared Harris nailed the scene and and figuring out that he is not who he even thinks he is. You know, it's but but it doesn't take five episodes for him to do it. Right. He doesn't like ponder this for a while. He just he's a smart guy. We know he's a, a like a genius. He's going to figure this out very quickly once he has a clue. 
<laughs> fuck, I am the left hand. <laughs> it was so good. And to right. hear, yeah, well, there, there's your your common everyday swearing, but it, it worked in this scene, I think. I, I uh, did like this one, yeah. Yeah. Man, I am the left hand. <laughs> I didn't but then he's be like, the left hand. Oh, but that's really genius. Even though I am the one, I am the sucker here. Uh, gosh, I'm really smart because I figured this out. But I didn't. Fig- yeah, it's just it's brilliant. It just goes around and around. Um, encephala- encephalic sensors. So a little bit more tech. They're they're dropping lots yep. of little tech. I don't know if it's going to carry forward, but it's nice that there's all these little little tech devices out there. And then, yeah, you talked about the waveforms canceling each other out. So I thought they visually looked cool too, the way they sort of spun around with the numbers and yeah. stuff. Yeah. So I think so too. And and yeah, this this did feel real. Of you know, you you have these waves that can cancel out brain waves. It it made sense to me as someone who knows a little bit about that world. Perfect. Of of sound waves, and then you that you have this idea of well, let's let's amp things up and let's have it resonate with the rock i mean yeah you can you can do that if you can make it loud enough which is very dune uh in the 1984 uh david lynchian version of dune where they invented a thing called the weirding module that allows people to shoot sound waves uh so it was i a thought nice- it was allowing people to post on reddit <laughs> She who posts or something. I don't know. I can't. <laughs> Just remember, John, never let your sense of morals prevent you from doing what's right. As a Salvar good line. Says. Yeah. A very good line. All right. In Terminus, uh, Director Cermak gets drunk outside the vault and has a conversation with Dr. Selden. Yeah. Um, I, I kind of like Cermak more now. Mm-hmm. You know, I think he's been very humanized. And I really did not like him at all when we first met him. He seemed very... Uh, like if he was in Star Wars, he's going to be an imperial officer, right? <laughs> <laughs> Very much so. Yeah, yeah. Full, full yeah. of himself and and feeling like he's got you know the world mastered and under his control. Right, but it, it works here. I think he he finally lets down the whole shtick a little bit, mm-hmm. and he's just dad, and he's grieving his daughter. Yeah, nothing like the death of your child to snap you too right, right. hard to reality. Mm-hmm. I mean, thankfully, there is no death, but he doesn't know that yet. Interesting. In one of uh, Cermak's comments, he refers to mendicants. And I went and uh, looked that up really quick. A mendicant is a religious follower who relies on alms. Basically, they're beggars. They okay. you know wander around dispensing religious wisdoms and, and truths and are supported by the community as they they wander around. Right. So interesting that he refers to uh, the Church of Selden folks and his daughter, like, please, God, don't be a mendicant. Don't be one of these, you know, folks yeah. kicking around these weird planets. Uh, but yet that's what she chose. <laughs> so. Yeah, especially, you know, you're in a you're in a society premised on the superiority of science. Yeah. And you use these monks as a necessity, as as, as they present it. I'm not sure it actually is a necessity, but they believe these are sort of uh, a necessary evil. Of mm-hmm. Let's go, you know, pretty this up and sell it. Let's let's have the marketing team go out. Right. But it's it is kind of gross to dress up your science as religion as a marketing deal, right? Like mm, just it's yeah. it's disingenuous. The, the mm-hmm. whole setup of it is 
kind of icky. And I think Polly knows that, which is why the high cleric is on a lot of juice right now. <laughs> I think you're exactly right there. He's He feels that tension, and so he ends up self-medicating uh, right. to try to like get through the his days. The mendicant medicates, right? Yes, exactly. Oh, that's a good title for a show, The Medicating Mendicant. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, anyway, yeah, I think – I think you're 100% right there. It is kind of icky. Uh, but yet, how do you sell it? How do you how do you get people to buy in without a little zazz? Yeah. You know, something so. we didn't find out with the whole Hober Mallow thing, we found out how that got ridden on the vault. Mm-hmm. Yep. We never really saw him decide to smite the <laughs> the warden. No. Yeah. I wonder I wonder why that happened. I wonder if there was another reason there that he didn't tell Polly. Hmm. Yeah. It's you know, a well, wrath, um, but I don't know. I don't know. Okay. It, it doesn't feel genuine to me. An open question for you. Uh, a lot more of this conversation of psycho history versus the individual and determinism versus free will. So, I mean, like that's a definite undercurrent of this whole season. And in, in David Goyer talks about that in our interview, you know, that this, that is definitely what they're playing with. So as we, weave in and out does the individual matter or right. you know, what is psychohistory uh, and does the individual matter within psychohistory and do well if it wasn't going to be this particular person the historical conditions were correct for another person it didn't matter the individual so do we really have free will and yeah um that's just a, a lot of trippy concepts to play with there yeah absolutely I just have to call something out. One of the little uh, details they have for the vaults, religious iconography. Icono- I can't say it now. Damn it. Um, <laughs> iconography? Yes, thank you. Iconography. Uh, it, it, there's these little uh, prime radiant looking things and with little, you know, uh, multicolored sort of Tibetan style colors, you know, sprouting out of them. It looks like a D20 from role playing games. And they, they, they just cut off, they drilled a hole in one end and cut off the other end and stuck some <laughs> string through it. So uh, it's I almost like, that's like a D20. it feels like the Shroud of Turin, right? There's some uh-huh. artifact. Yeah, that you're like this is this proves our whole idea system. This proves our our whole way of thinking, mm, mm-hmm. and it's gone, and we don't know where it is, but we know it exists somewhere. We believe it exists somewhere at least. Faith and belief, and yeah. Uh, yeah. So so it's interesting to see this kind of like you say iconography yeah. prop up around the prime radiant when we and then, when we can see it as the viewer, but they haven't seen it in a hundred years. And, and then the selling of um, bones. So like that was a thing in, in part of Europe, in Europe's past was, oh yes, this was the fingernail of Jesus, you know, or this was St. Peter's, you know, yeah. uh, you know, le- an eyelash from his left eye or whatever. Perhaps and, the left thumb. No, I, yes. I'm, just, <laughs> I'm just playing with Harry's comments. So, you know, you, people want a physical manifestation of their faith so that they can believe in that right. object, right? There's a tangible. All right, another combined scene. Uh, Hober and Constant uh, jump into Terminus and try to run dark. They reminisce about Polly and then take a moment for themselves. They try to enjoy a little post-coital bottle of Locris wine, and then they're apprehended by Empire. Uh, I... I, I'm very curious about the motivations of Hober here. He seemed very hesitant here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and even to the point that things weren't operational, <laughs> and Constant was giving him a little, you know, jokes about that. 
but constant her confidence is unshaken right it's not totally. like things weren't operational so she's like oh am i am i not pushing you into something here is this mm-hmm. is this okay she was just like no we're i why wouldn't you want this right. drops the robe why wouldn't you want this yeah come come on let's go which i don't know i don't know if i liked that from constant i think that was a little a little uh pressury on on uh hoper there okay you didn't you thought it was a little icky I mean, reverse the genders. Does that is that a good look? True. Good point. <laughs> yeah, like a little pressurizing. Yeah, I can I can see. You just that. strip in front of them and say we're doing it. Right. I don't yeah. think that's a good look. Okay, I see what you're saying there. I see what you're saying there. You 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 told me earlier on that you you felt a little uh, off about. I, something I think that's what I it was. Right there. Was, I got it. There was the I issue of did Hober really want to do this? I'm not right. sure. I I I'm not reading that. I mean, I think. In the end, he makes his peace with it, but I I don't know if that's is this genuine kosher. affection for her? Yes. Yeah, genuine, genuinely wanting to get with her, where she's right. she's hot on him, and he's just sort of ac- ultimately acquiescing as opposed to ha- having genuine feelings. So, right, yeah, interesting. Okay, uh, when they're in the ship and they're over terminus, there's a if you freeze the scene, what something that's cool is you can see all of the other fleet. Uh, these tiny little black dots all circling around Terminus. So uh, they're sort of, you know, showing how massive the Empire's fleet is, which is is pretty cool. And then in the last episode, I didn't say anything. This was in my notes, but we were kind of running for time. But I noticed that Hober still had the little dots in his wrist from the spacers' uh, space cuffs. And so then those come into play in this episode. That's how they were able to track him. So, yeah, that's fun. Um, the space cuff. So is that something that they put in, or was yeah. this something that he had? Okay, I was I was curious if this was like an implant that everybody had. That no, you, know, th- you know how in Westworld everybody had like the implants of, or mm-hmm. a lot of people had the implants of the. You could take a tab and feel like you're in paradise or whatever. I thought maybe it's that. Yeah, no, I think these are things that that the spacers physically embedded into Hober's wrists. And when they drop the cuffs on him at one point, we've got to push in and we show those things lit up on his wrist. And so, mm. you know, sort of marking them so that when we see it in this scene, we go, oh, that's, you know, there's a lot, a lot of piercings there. there. She who works at Claire's. <laughs> I love these jokes. All right. On Day's shuttle, Day taunts Polly while eating an apple. Polly explains the functioning of the church, and Day hopes that the observer theory is enough to tilt the tides in Empire's favor. Yeah. um, So we finally get the line that Marilyn's been waiting for for weeks. Uh Uh-huh. You know, violence is the last refuge of being competent. That yep, happens yep, here. Yep. And uh Polly Polly's pretty confident, honestly, for a guy who is in uh <laughs> who's who's in captivity. I feel like he is very I think he's more sure about his beliefs than he ever has been. Mm. Right? He Interesting. finally feels yeah. like things are important. The way he's seen the cruelty of Empire, I think he goes, Yeah, okay, there's a reason we made this foundation and it's still there. Is there some Christian biblical references here in the sense of having a 
a uh, saint or, you know, a cleric in this case, sort of in, you know, standing in front of the, you know, not only a representative of the dominant. You're going Pontius Pilate kind of deal. Yeah. I'm wondering if there's, there's some echoes of that. Well, at the same time, empire is eating an apple, which is also a religious Christian metaphor of, you know, knowledge. And they didn't write it. Let's be honest here. But anyway, (laughs) Anyway. I don't, maybe I'm seeing in in the shadows again. No, I'm, I'm saying I'm saying it's a Jewish thing. Oh, um, okay. oh right. You're fair <laughs> enough. You're right. You are correct. I apologize. Um, yes. That's that okay. was, I'm off. So, so, yeah, I mean, it could be, you know, you have, you have day having the apple of knowledge of, of life and I don't know. I don't know. I, I can't place the metaphor if it's there. It might just be right. an apple that he's eating menacingly because he's Lee Pace. Just little homages. And yeah, oh yeah, he's very menacingly eating that apple. But they're just nice. It's just, you know, little things sprinkled throughout the episode that that make it a richer experience, I guess, than that. Um, this, uh, I, I don't know if you noticed, you know, but Day is all cleaned up and looking shiny and they left Polly still blown up and bleeding and dirty and, in tattered robes. Why so. would they help him? Yeah, exactly. I tried to find references to this fable that Day talks about, about the stone egg that breaks the bowl, but I couldn't find anything on the internet uh, related to that. Seems like a show creation. Yeah. So uh, if anybody knows of anything, uh, let me know. Uh, I'd I'd love to know a little bit more about that. Watch it be in the Mahabharata. Yes, exactly. Right. The one thing that I really kind of think I know about, (laughs) and it's not there. Uh, and Google has an index, I guess. Uh, and then this idea of standing and thinking versus kneeling and praying. There's some definite, you know, playing around in there with religion and science versus science yeah. and thinking for yourself as opposed to having somebody else's thought imply, you know, embedded in you. And then you're just following that without thinking about it. Yeah. It's interesting. It's interesting, especially when you look at world religions now, like not every not every religion kneels when they pray. Some, right. you know, bow, some stand. There's a there's a whole variety of customs around prayer. So it's mm-hmm. it's uh, this whole standing. I mean, I guess you can read it as day thinking he's sort of above the whole prayer thing. But mm. uh, yeah, I don't know. Does has the triple goddesses uh, passed down the Cleonic line? It'll be interesting to see if we get triple goddess uh, religion again. Yeah, we haven't heard about it the whole season, right? No, yeah, feels strange because it felt like a big part of last season. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. I I wouldn't put it past Goyer and his and the writers' room to weave these things across you know multiple uh, yeah for seasons. So and they might not. You could you could assume that days meddling and and sort of corporatizing that planet mm-hmm. led the religion to falter mm. which would be interesting read that too yeah yeah all right dusk and rue resume their line of inquiry and discover a secret door hidden in the mural they descend to s- discover what might be an apparition of cleon the first who describes the room as a prison yeah um i think i think it's cleon the first that's what i read it too yeah yeah but yeah, I, I guess maybe maybe he's been around the whole time, or maybe they've cloned him, or uh, he and, knows and, that this is Cleon the sixteenth. So right. how does he know that? Right? There's some is, level is of awareness. Is he a robot? Is he well? Because we know that they can put the memories of one Cleon into another. Mm-hmm. So why wouldn't if you want to do that? Why wouldn't you just have Cleon the first memory in everybody? Yeah. 
and then you actually do have an immortal emperor. And then, well, or if you've got these ocular things all over, feeding back into this where where you can keep tabs on your uh, exponents, right? Yeah, is this just a grand experiment for Cleon the First? Mm-hmm. Demerzel, go make them think that they're in charge. Uh, you know, there. so we've only got two episodes left. So episode nine is going to have to deal with what is this? What prison? Whose prison? What prison? What What's going on here? You know, the wizard behind the curtain who, who really is, you know, playing the tune uh, that we're that we're watching. Right. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm really excited for episode nine. I had texted you after this episode, like I need <laughs> to watch episode nine now because I'm just... Yeah, I, I'm just blown away. And, and nice job too. The, this was a combined scene with a with this next scene coming up, where we've got Dawn and Sarith, and then Dusk and Rue, and they're sort of weaving, editing their two stories uh, around each other. And with the reveal of like, oh my God, Demerzel is the power, right? You know, that's uh, it was just a nicely paced and nicely stitched together. Speaking right. of which, down in the heat sinks, Dawn and Sareth meet and consummate their relationship. They question the nature of the Cleons and realize that Demerzel is the one true heir, the forever you get that, Empress. You get that can opener. <laughs> you yeah. finally got it. You finally, you finally got to use it. the can opener. And, and it did look terrible. It did look terrible, but I'm just glad it was in his uh, flank or his side rather than, you know. Uh, I, mean, I mean, it seemed like it went down to do its do- job down there. Oh, did it like go in? Maybe, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. I I read it as it's tunneling not, ooh, through his God. body. All right, which can we is just even worse? No, let's keep talking about it. Uh, you get to ask uh, going through. Yeah, yeah. I you did get ask, to ask about, him. I, I did yeah. ask David Goyer about. It. I was like, "Why is this the most terrifying thing I've ever seen?" <laughs> and he said he wanted it to be kind of spooky and kind of mm-hmm. um, unpleasant, and you know, maybe they refer to it as this you know routine, painless thing. But maybe it's not, right? Maybe right. it is kind of wow. Yeah. This whole, as I was saying before, this whole weaving of these two, um, Dusk and Rue and Dawn and and Sarath, and they're figuring it out, was a really nice uh, counter note to Harry figuring out stuff in this same episode. Even though this is spread out over four people, Harry's doing a similar thing, but compressed in one guy in just a few moments where it takes the four of them this huge span of time to unpack yeah. everything. But at the same time, resonating within the storyline that these two mysteries are being unresolved and, un- and unpacked, not unresolved, but yeah, being resolved and unpacked. So, yeah. I'm I'm so excited for the end of the season. I think that it's it's not that I want it to be over, but I want the answers already. God, and to find out really what's going on with Demerzel uh, and that she really is this, you know, secret power uh, that's yeah. been in front of us the whole time, not subservient, but actually dominant. Exactly. In, in a passive way. So, all right. Gail wakes up. Let's uh, end, the, uh, end the episode. Gail wakes up, bound on the table, surrounded by the sighted. We learn about how Tellum was able to transfer her consciousness uh, into uh, another body and looks pretty terrifying. It does. It does. And um, yeah, I I didn't see this coming. I did not see a body transfer coming. This is very Sith. Yeah. <laughs> this is a thing that they do in the Legend Star Wars novels, this, this okay. transfer, 
where you right. can put your body, your mind into another body. And we know Palpatine, they're going to bring it into, into canon somehow because Palpatine basically does that with his clones. That's right. the whole idea is he's, he right. keeps transferring his consciousness to the clones. Uh, and so it, it was just something I did not expect to see my Star Wars in my foundation. This idea of I can't, I am, my ego is so important. I am such a singularity in the world that all y'all can F off and I'm going to install my consciousness forever um, is such hubris, is such, uh, you know, such the height of arrogance and privilege and power that, you know, I'm going to override all y'all and I'm going to make sure that my ego persists. And we have it in Harry, we have it in Tellum, and we have it in Cleon, which is a nice little uh, uh, trinity right there uh, for us. Well, I think that I think that Tellum kind of told us right away that she was a problem when she says, "Don't worship children; it's not good for them." Right? right? <laughs> like she knows she's a problem. Right? I think she right. she understands that she is not doing a good thing here. And she tells us too, "I'm afraid of dying." She tells Gail right. that right on right. the on the beggar. She says, "You know, I've got a I've got a problem. I'm afraid of dying, literally." Right. <laughs> and so. She keeps herself going. Yeah. Uh, don't worry, Gail. You'll die, but I'll always remember you. That's not a quote. That's a paraphrase. But this idea that yeah. oh, I listened for that little voice and for many days, and I always remember her. And don't worry, sweetheart. I'll I'll remember you too. But yeah. you're effed, girl. <laughs> so you're basically, gone. you're imprisoned for years, and then mm-hmm. your memory just fades away. How Which terrible is, is that? Terrible. Which is what. Day did to the uh, Azora, the gardener from season one, like I've erased the memory of you in the world, but I'm keeping you alive in this prison box in this, you know, uh, sensory deprivation situation. Especially, I mean, the only people who might remember Gail here are the foundation who. Right. Who think that she killed Harry Seldon. Right. (laughs) That's That's not a great memory. No. But at least she's remembered. I think that's what Dusk would say. And then we've got now Demerzel, who has perfect memory and remembers all this stuff, right? And she is uh-huh. Tellum in a way, right? Yep. Where she persists, but she doesn't have to jump bodies. She's got uh, one body that she can repair. So, ooh, really interesting. Um a couple of other small notes. Uh, interesting, this idea that this whistle is harmless, but in uh, you know when it's in parts and pieces, when it but when it's brought together, it's this powerful, you know, tool that can you know uh, uh, cause the consciousness patterns to align. Yep. Yeah, I, and- I, I did like that a lot. This again, you know, resonating frequencies. You're making a chord that's going to just mess up your mind. Right. And then we've got these harmonic plates. And do you remember in the Rings of Power, the opening credit sequence was also little particles vibrating on a plate. And these are called uh, Cladney patterns. And this is this guy. I can't remember where Cladney's from. There's a whole Wikipedia article on it. Uh, It's spelled uh, C-H-L-A-D-N-I. And it's all about how these waveforms will resonate physically and will create pattern. And so I like how they use that, but it was again, another rings of power reference here, you know? Uh, yeah. Well, we do have bear McCreary doing the music for both. That's true. That's true. 
God, that'd be he'd be a fun person to talk to. Uh, Maybe we will one day. I don't know. know. It'll be fun. We're gonna Let's uh, try. We'll ask. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, last little detail: um, the rope that Tellum uh, cuts to uh, then tie them together again. Uh, she's cutting it with the USB knife that would that had Harry that uh, Raish stabbed Harry with, and then his consciousness was downloaded to. Right. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And then so, I guess I guess I wonder if I guess I guess you wouldn't have her mentalic powers if she were a digital thing. It was like if Harry could just make her a digital copy and say, just stay there. You'll be fine. Stop <laughs> taking people over. That's right. Uh, but again, just this cat's paw, like, you know, it's like the cat's paw dagger from Game of Thrones world where the, here's this artifact that just keeps showing up in these key positions and is sort of this, um, um, you know, there's a lot. Maybe not so much turning on this knife, but the fact that there's this thing that's tripping through time um, that we keep seeing is a nice little detail. Right. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, that ends the episode. All right, David, let's take a quick break. And when we get back, we will get into listener feedback. And we're back. David, time for listener feedback. Sounds good. Uh, we got a bunch this time, so keep it coming, y'all. We are heading into our season wrap-up. So remember, uh, we'll do an, one more podcast after the final episode, So we'll, and that'll be a largely feedback episode, so make sure you send it into empire at thelorehounds.com. Or hit us up on our website, and you can use the contact form or voicemail, uh, and we can even grab a few things off the discord. All right. First up is Kim M. Uh, she used the contact form. She says, Hey hounds, I'm listening to your pod in episode seven of foundation. And a thought struck me when Demerzel tells Sarah that to quote, to my knowledge, I am the only one left. Is it possible Demerzel could have made more robots? Could Calais be a robot that Demerzel made? Is it possible that Demerzel is following Harry's plan? Thanks. Thanks, Kim. John, thoughts? Yeah, I think that leaves wiggle room. But also, I mean, she could lie to Sarah. I mean, she has lied to Sarah before, right? You know, mm-hmm. I think that there's nothing in her programming that would prevent her from doing that. So, yeah, she could have made more. Although I, I don't know if she would make more or if she would delegate a little bit. Maybe Callie is a robot, right? And maybe Callie is building up the army. Demerzel is keeping Empire in check. And yeah, it's a cool idea. John, as I realized here too, I just, um, Kim M sent in three <laughs> emails to us and uh, I didn't realize that. So I'm just going to combine them here really quickly. She's got two more things. She says about Hober Mallow and the fact that he sold over 38 uh, of Selden's finger bones after his death. She says, I'm thinking whoever cloned Harry on Una's world is one of those entities that bought a finger bone or two, question mark. And they needed the prime radiance so they could download Harry's consciousness into a clone. The more finger bones and parts of Harry that are out there, maybe we'll see more clones of him, question mark. And it seems like the two Harrys found out about Hober at the exact same time. So we kind of resolved that in this episode. Jumping ahead. uh, I can't believe it's almost over either. I've got a few other thoughts about the last episode. I think Glaywin is going to persuade Bell to either fight against Empire or maybe even join Foundation or leave the fight altogether. Perhaps 
that will persuade the spacers to join foundation. Also, if anything happens to Becky, I'm going to be very upset. Uh, remember in well, I'm season sorry, one, sorry. <laughs> you're upset. Sorry for your upset. I, I think I read this email after I watched the, the new episode and I was like, oh no, Kim. Oh no. Sorry, Kim. Yeah. She says, uh, she loved that she, they, we, they turned a really scary monster into something lovable instead, sort of like a big cat with giant shoulder claws. Love Kim. Thanks, Kim. Uh, thanks for all your feedback. Oh, uh, keep it coming. We've got episode, uh, eight and nine and 10 yet to go. Um, so yeah, what about this idea of is, is, can they not jump the shark and still keep Harry around in some sort of physical form beyond just being in the vaults, being a a digital ghost? Yeah. So I guess my question with the clone theory is how does this clone have the memories of the Harry that was digitized if it's a traditional clone? Or, or really any kind of clone, right? Because just duplicating somebody's DNA does not mean that you can press out a version of them that it looks the same, acts the same, has the same memories as the previous version. So, I mean, I guess that that's my pitch for the robot theory. But I also don't know how Harry died, if, if Harry did die, because I guess we, we're still not 100% sure of that. <laughs> right. Because now we were faked out with Salvor, so I'm not completely convinced that this Harry's dead anyway. I think I, we just have to keep watching. I don't. I don't think that we have the answers that we need to answer all these questions. You know, I, I'm nervous about this idea of Harry still being alive because I don't want it to be a Glenn crawling out from the dumpster in you know Walking Dead situation. Right. How many times can you bring back a character and sort of not around. jump the shark? Yeah. yeah. So it's it's a very fraught thing. I mean. If he does it, can they pull it off? That's going to be a real test. So, uh, needless to say, I'm a little nervous. So, good question. We at least have Vault Harry, so we won't be without Jared Harris. Who Vault Harry is very funny too, from the real physical uh, Harry. Uh, He was very funny in this episode. So, he was. He was. He was really good, and uh, he does seem to have, like you say, a different a different vibe Mm -hmm. from the other Harry. All right, uh, Marilyn R. Pukila, our favorite Tolkien scholar, writes in and she says, hello, Lorehounds, great podcast as always. Um, and she compliments me on my encapsulation of her research uh, that she sent me. So, well, you know, I started with good input, so the output uh, could be uh, of a better quality. Interesting conversation on choices over what you eat and which creatures suffer. I'm not sure that sharing the suffering is required, though. It seems to me that an acceptance of the reality uh, that life feeds on life can be made with gratitude and equanimity. Suffering need not enter into it. I also feel that any people who can block off their own thoughts from others read others' thoughts and block others' thoughts would certainly be able to block off the pain signals coming from anyone else. Tell them certainly seems to be impervious to that pain that people experience when they are drowning. I suspect that she simply chooses not to teach this particular bit of mentalic uh, ability to her followers. John, any thoughts on that? Yeah, although now I'm convinced that she has i mean i'm not convinced i've been told that she has a lot more power than the average mentalic because she's yeah she's many mentalic she's sort of the uh omegatron right of uh what what, what am i trying to say the, the power <laughs> rangers all get together megatron and they form the big is that right the, it, no megatron is transformers so I'm, okay. I'm trying to figure she 
she's the Power Rangers come together and form the big giant guy who faces right. everybody. That's what we that's what we have here in Tellum. And right. so if you if you have that, then maybe she can turn things off the way other people can't. I don't know. Yeah. Interesting. All right. She continues, I think and hope that Gail's return to counting primes indicates that she's looking for ways to block her mind from interference from the mentalics. I think it's possible that she could be just playing along with Tellum and the others for a time being as she works to boost her own abilities to find out how far she can go. To do this, she had to convince Tellum and the others that she's on their side while all the time she's trying to figure out how to break free. Given her hatred of Harry's control of her, I really can't see that she would fall into Tellum's plans without a single bit of resistance. Well, certainly being on the table, I, I think she is uh, does not have the <laughs> upper hand here in this situation. Yeah. I mean, also, I don't, I don't know if Gail normally would give in right this way, but also she's under the influence of the mentalics mental manipulation. She's not herself right now. I right. think that that's fair to say. Right. And I think that it is a fair read that she wants approval, right? That that's, that's a big part of her, mm-hmm. her mm-hmm. motivation. Her I psychological think Tellum motivation. really called her, yep. called her on that. And when Tellum gives her the candy that Harry withheld from her, which is, ultimate praise and you're going to be the in charge you are my my prodigy mm -hmm. and yeah you're special that is a lot more enticing than harry going well we got a lot of work ahead of us and we'll have to spend our time figuring out how to best push and nudge the foundation also harry has not you know nurtured trust from her harry has withheld information from her constantly right and made her doubt herself and made her feel like the villain for just having the ability to to see the future a little bit. Yeah. Not trusting her. Yeah. Right. And that's Harry's uh, MO uh, across the board, even with his own digital copy. Yeah. So I do think you can, you can make clear distinctions between how she feels about them based on just their behavior towards her. Right. So John, I'm not alone in my prison of uh, thinking that Markley. Oh my God. Uh, was. <laughs> you know what? I thought it was a, a wrong idea from the beginning, <laughs> and now I literally have David Goyer as evidence that it's not correct. In the most hilarious way. Uh, in the most hilarious way. Uh, Marilyn says, I agree with David. Markley may very well be one of the cited from Ignis. I have to think that Tellum has agents on Trantor, and how else did Markley hide his work for Sarath? So well, given his regular regular memory audits, I'm not sure that Dominion could have learned that much from Rue's experience to be able to audit memories without leaving a trace. And speaking of Rue, I'm rather afraid that she's become very vulnerable given her knowledge that Demerzel is a robot, not to mention Sarah's increasing, increasingly risky maneuvers. She may well come under threat from day in order to control Sarah's behavior. Well, in in this episode, uh, Sarah certainly comes to um day's side and uh bolsters him rather right. than uh, undercuts him well she bolsters him in a way that was very political i think it was very mm-hmm. i i'm going to make you feel good right now so that while well, you're hot and heavy you go do something stupid right you go yeah yes darling you go off planet and while i get with your younger clone what a big <laughs> strong man you yeah, are, you know. Oh, you're going to bring me a planet yeah. for my wedding gift? Oh, great. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, yep. she's playing a very dangerous game, but she is uh, She's playing it well. 
she's playing it well, considering uh, her age and her experience. Yeah, so she's doing good. And yes, want want pour one out for Markley <laughs> in, in my theory. Uh, thanks sorry, for David. for trying to ride with me there, uh, Mar- uh, Marilyn. I appreciate that. Uh, a couple more things she has. Another faith belief distinction: you believe the plane can fly. You have faith that the pilot is well trained. The technicians have all been careful and that the plane has recently uh, tuned into tip top shape. The phrase, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Um, she says, not a word for word quotation, but it comes from the book of John, chapter 20, 29. Jesus says this to the doubting Thomases as a rebuke when he appears after his resurrection, just so that Thomas can touch his body and then believe in the resurrection. Thomas requires experiential knowledge to bring in the third piece of my discussion about this rather than anyone else's say so. So yeah, this idea of, of needing a physical object to root your belief in something, root your faith. Yeah. Yeah. I, I buy that. I buy that. Um, I mean, you have, uh, Polly, who actually saw the prime radiant, right, and saw mm-hmm. the events of the first crisis, and and saw the way the vault behaved before Selden came out the first time. That's a lot different from Constant, who takes everything at the word of her elders, right. Right. She concludes, I have to say the quality of this show is giving all other shows a real run for their money. I'm going to be spoiled for anything of lesser quality from now on. And your podcast is the finest of any of the foundation ones that I've heard, although I do recognize my own bias in the matter. <laughs> Thanks, Marilyn. Yeah, I'm not sure it's that. a it's a totally it's a totally fair review, you know? Yeah. They're not going to let you write that one on the New York Times. <laughs> uh, John, last episode, we missed a voicemail from Brian8063. Brian, apologies for that. Sorry, vacation scheduling, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Um, but we have it here. Uh, so, John, you want to cue that up? Yeah, let's do it. Hey, John and David. I don't know if this will play a little while later, but. Uh, David, I hope you had a relaxing vacation. I did. Thank Great you, insights on the podcast for Foundation. Thank you both for that. I'm interested in the church slash religious component of the Foundation. I read a couple of the books many years ago, so I don't remember much of anything. Uh, John, you mentioned the Crusades in a previous podcast, and I was thinking the same thing. Then Harry mentioned that the church is probably a phase. I think this ties into Asimov himself. From what I've learned, he was an atheist and Jewish. He was not a practicing Jew, so like Harry, I bet he did not think much of practicing religion. So the show might be a reflection here. Because Asimov might be suspicious of a church, society will evolve out of it. The church in this show reminds me of the church in the Middle Ages, where relics were sold, clerics stood between the people and God, and played a major social and political role in society. However, this foundation church seems to have a weaker political hold, and the clerics seem to have fewer rituals. What I mean by that is that the people don't go to a church or listen to clerics talk at length about God in a regular fashion. 
it, it's more of a show and I'm not sure when or how often this show is done. I could see this church collapse as I don't see deep roots being planted. Maybe it's not examined in the show, which is why I feel this way. Anyway, this season is better than season one, in my opinion. The Empire storyline, my favorite, is improving with all the political intrigues and genetics, and I'm also coming around to the Harry, Gale, Salvor storyline as the plot gets more twists. I wasn't invested in that storyline in season one. I found it kind of confusing, but it's gaining importance to the overall show. Thanks again, and cheers to everything you do. Brian8063. Thanks, Brian. Um, always great stuff uh, when Brian writes in, uh, who he himself is a hi- bit of a historian, I believe, in his profession. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think we even talked with Goyer a little bit about season one. And, you know, he conceded the fact that, look, we just had to lay a lot of track. Um, And sometimes that's not easy to do from a entertainment storytelling standpoint. We just got to set up structures and that's just the nature of the beast. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, how do do you tell a story without establishing the world? Right. We spend a lot of time setting up the Shire and Frodo and everybody in the Lord of the Rings. Mm -hmm. And that's fine. You know, it's because you have the trilogy, which he would have called one book to set up, uh, you know, to get through that whole story. And here we had to get through what is the clone dynasty just Mm -hmm. to get to the point where you can play with that. And, and, you know, you, you can't play with something you haven't established. uh, And Gale and Salvor and Harry and all that. And even, even so, you know, and we, we, there's a, obviously a lot of known about how COVID really threw uh, a wrench into the works for them and, and how that created some difficulties. And yeah, right. I just worry. I agree that I, I believe the actors are, uh, have grown into their roles and, and um, I feel like the writer's room and just and the directors and the directing, all of that is really ticking along now. It's really humming. And, and if we have this quality for the rest of the the run, however long they get, yeah, it's going to be a, a really, it's going to go on the shelf, uh, on the top shelf is one of the the better television science fiction shows that we've had in a long time. Absolutely. I really hope that we can stay at this quality level, this whole run. And regarding uh, relics and the Middle Age, the church in Europe, uh, the Christian church in the Middle Ages in, in Europe, yeah, I believe that's all uh, uh, overt on <laughs> on the writer's part to, to say, yeah, this is what we're modeling this off of. Definitely. All right. Last up, Duve71. Duve says, hey guys, blimey, this show just gets better and better. Just did not see Salvor being the necessary death, but of course it makes perfect sense. Not too much feedback this week as the second hour pod you pulled this week. Jeez, you must have really great spouses. Yeah. We do. <laughs> we do. And we we have to make sure that we balance our life versus mm-hmm. podcasting. So <laughs> yep. Um Anyway, uh, a little late with the episode to watch the pod listen, blah, blah, blah. Uh, skipping some stuff here. Such great writing, directing, and acting in this episode, especially with the Sarah Demerzel Empire Triangle. The tension in the Zen Garden scene was palpable, which then ramped up in the medical scene. Like you, I love the slight bit of humor to puncture what was not only a tense scene, but a deeply uncomfortable one. 
I can't believe that having all those minions in the room wasn't a conscious setup by Demerzel to be exactly that uncomfortable and invasive as part of the power plays going oh, on yeah. here. Yeah, yeah, definitely. To that end, uh, that scene with Demerzel just laying out the horrendous truth was a double violation for Sarah. Few harsh to watch. Agreed. And, and beautiful acting and, and really great writing all around. Mm-hmm. Other thoughts were how Bell is talking out loud about why it would not be the, a great move to side with Foundation against the Empire. Methinks he, methinks he doth protest. Yeah, boy, it's getting at the end of the podcast. Methinks he doth protest too much. What could make him take a step he obviously would like to do? Question mark. That's a good question. We didn't really talk about that too much too when he says when they go through when he sort of walks through the logic of well look if i did this then what if i did that then what right right yeah it's really interesting to to see bell wrestling with these issues uh and to see what his ultimate choices might be because there's stakes involved right there's space he's obviously got a good relationship with spacers right they've developed that all season long he's joking with them he respects them they respect him she who pity laughs yep <laughs> he's uh he's respected by his troops so if he made a move and broke his oath to empire or if he could find some sort of legalese way to you know get around that we'll, we'll see i think it's a, it's a really interesting question and i think it very much goes into this question of what the story of the mahabharata uh, is a, a big chunk of it is about which is following your dharma which is the path that's for you based on who you are and what your values and, and beliefs are and so uh it, again it's another really great dimension um carries on uh, i like david's theory on the guard being a metallic spy anything is possible at this point you, you're hey. creating an army of markleys <laughs> that's right i had two supporters um i'm sorry for everyone who followed me down this path but hey that's what this this is the fun stuff of the podcasting right you're leading them all down through the staircase to the mysterious markley cave he who what? Who he who what? Uh, he he who rabbit holes. <laughs> there you go. That works. Uh, with the death of Salvor just now, uh, just not sure where we're going to go next, which I love. It's great to have a show that's willing to confound expectations, but give you conclusions to draw uh, uh, some of these conundrums that actually make sense. The only one really still giving me an itch is the whole hologram Harry to human. Is he actually dead? Perhaps just shut down. We know predictions and patterns are Harry's superpowers, so I can't believe he would not have foreseen the whole mentalics need to take him and Salver off the board to realize Gale as their messiah. Yeah, I yeah, yeah there's got to be more going on here with this. I, I just, yeah. There, there's something there's something yeah I, I i just i don't trust my own eyes just like the mentalics <laughs> at this point nor nor should we is is david goyer our tell him in in this fantasy He's, world he, he might be tell him but i he was much nicer than tell him much nicer yeah that's his <laughs> magic power all right uh Duve concludes we saw in season one the power of psychohistory and how harry's predictive powers accounted for pretty much all things apart from gale obviously whereas we seem to be getting shown how the model is going wildly off course. Or is it? Only three episodes left. Eek. Enjoy the Empire's Peace. 
Stu, aka Duve71. Thanks, Duve. Always good to hear from you. Yeah. So uh three three well, two left now. And yeah, I think that's a big question. Is is the spacers not siding with foundation? a strategic blunder or a strategic su- success? Was this all a setup to push uh, Empire into overextending themselves and, right. and push them into a trap? I I think that it would be very satisfying if the Spacers did go with Hober in the end because sure. that's a sure. good deal for them. And it would be a satisfying moment if they kind of had their whole ent moot. You know, you remember the uh the ent moot in uh Oh right. Mm-hmm. Right. And yeah, they yeah. go, yeah. okay, all right, we've had our discussion and now we're ready to go and fight on the side of the foundation. Uh is that where they got the moot, oxen moot from? Oh is maybe that, they, maybe it is. Yeah. Maybe it is. I never understood it's a moot. where the moot. It's um a yeah, no, that's a good question. We're we've got not a lot of runway left for this season, so all right, John, I think that wraps it up for us today. Um, I think so. Yeah, we are enjoying the show. Can't wait for episode nine. Check out the Goyer interview as soon as that drops. Patrons should be getting it shortly, and uh, the public will be getting what you said. We're going to try and get it yep. out for Sunday. Yep. I think yeah. Sunday. Awesome. Cool. All right. David, it's been fun, but we have a couple more things to get through. Just our oh, programming I, notes and yes. our. <laughs> I was ready to sign off. I thought we were oh, done. Yeah, there. sorry. I'm. I'm no. uh, I've ruined your vibe here. That's I've harsh your vibe. Right. So, but, uh, yes, programming well, I was notes. I'm going to tell you all about our affiliates. Please do so. I always like to hear about our affiliates. We've got Wolfshift Dust, and it's going strong with Dune. Alicia's working on updating her schedule to account for the. Uh, the moving of the Dune vol- uh, Part 2 movie premiere. But once she has that figured out, she's going to start posting again. And she and Luke will be breaking down the Dune series from the books to the the would-be movies <laughs> uh, to the movies that actually happened uh, to the video game. So you, you will see the culture of Dune. She'll be going through all that. It's going to be in some great conversations. She's already released her preview pod. So I hope you'll check out her feed for that. Anthony is over on Properly Howard Movie Review with his friend Steve. And the two of them are breaking down remakes all season. And when I say breakdown, it's not like a scene-by-scene breakdown like we do. <laughs> I, I I think more um, using them as punching bags a lot of the time, <laughs> which is fun. It's really fun. It, it's um, They make fun of it. They talk about what they like. They talk about what they didn't like. And in the end, they decide if it's better, worse, or on par with your average Ron Howard movie. And uh, I, I love that framework. We were on their Dune podcast. They just did RoboCop. They're about to do The Wolfman and The Wicker Man. They got plenty of stuff coming. Uh, they pitched the sequel to Cocaine Bear on the RoboCop <laughs> podcast. So it's, it's not so like good. you have to be hyper-focused on this movie that they're talking about they can just talk about anything on the podcast and it's like it's like you put it on in the car it's like taking a road trip with your friends who are very funny the i think that's a really important point too is is that you don't have to watch the movie that they're talking about to enjoy the podcast because they talk about uh, you know do sequels work how do they work they talk a lot about cultural references it's it's a really wide-ranging discussion so don't feel locked in just because it's a movie you haven't seen or or might never see yeah 
Um, yeah. You know, cause it's a, it's a much broader conversation. All right. All right. Uh, and for us, uh, it's just foundation, Ahsoka and wheel of time, <laughs> wheel that, of time. That's what we're living in. Yep. Just dropped this morning, John, you pushed out. Thank you so much. I mean, queuing all of those episodes to drop all ahead. We got screeners for those. So we're ahead of the curve. I just We've watched episode three episodes four. out. Yep. <laughs> right. I just watched four last night. Um, so yeah, we're going to be rolling with that and Ahsoka at the same time. So that's really our, our big focus for the moment. We're allowed to give our general impressions now. And I got to say, Wheel of Time season two is great. It is much, much better than season one. So yeah. if you if you were kind of out on it after season one, which I a little bit was like I was I was having a hard time with it after season one. It's much better. They're okay. they're really doing a much better job. And I think part of that is they don't have COVID restrictions. They have sort of found their footing on what they're doing. And it is a pleasure to watch. I look forward to it every time I can watch an episode. We've seen the first half of the season. We may get screeners for the second half. We're not totally sure yet. But uh, yeah, it's it's. It's such a great season so far, and I hope you'll join us for our six hours of discussion that just dropped. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, and we we decided we would do individual episodes because we did get access to screeners so that as you watch it, you can take your own time and catch up uh, with the pods uh, being there because it is a lot of content to, to watch, let alone listen to. But it is. I think, and I, I addressed this in one of the episodes, like if you're fantasy adjacent or, you know, or you're in fantasy and sci-fi, but you haven't read this stuff, um, definitely, you know, use the pod because uh, I think we try to to make sense of a lot of it because there's a lot going on in this season if you're not uh, caught up. So yeah, lean on us. We got you. Absolutely. Uh, and with Ahsoka, we're just having a good time with our cereal. So Eating join cereal. us, grab your pajamas, and let's keep going down the Star Wars pipeline, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Okay, John, uh, we should get the heck out of here. But before we do that, we do have to thank our Patreon lore master subscribers and all our Patreon subscribers. Thank you, everyone. We're closing in on 100 subscribers. It's hard to believe. Um, it's such a small number in some ways, but it's such a huge number. I think our, all these people, their hearts are bigger than their feet. Ha, ha, ha. Uh, and uh, we always like to say thank you so much for your support. To our lore masters, Samartian, Cyrus, Mark H., Michael G., Michelle E., David W., Brian P., Nick W., S.C., Peter O.H., Bettina W., Adam S., Nancy M., Lavinia T., Doove 71, Brian 8063, Frederick H., Sarah L., Gareth C., Eric F., Matthew M., Sarah M., DJ Miwa, Andra B., Kwang Yu, Laura G., Deadeye Jedi Bob, Nathan T., and Alex V. Our gratitude forever. Thank you so very much. And thank you to all our subscribers. We really do appreciate you a lot. You guys help keep us on, you know, we've, we've got lots of things that we have to keep track of and, and we couldn't do all of that without your uh, material support. So thanks everyone. And we'll see you on the Goyer interview. The Lorehounds podcast is produced and published by the Lorehounds. You can send questions and feedback and voicemails at the lorehounds.com slash contact. Get early and ad-free access to all Lorehounds podcasts at patreon.com slash the Lorehounds. Any opinions stated are ours personally and do not reflect the opinion of or belong to any employers or other entities. Thanks for listening. What does innovation sound like? 
It sounds like the luxury of being in the moment with your customer, client, or patient. It sounds like having the right information right when you need it. It sounds like being at your best for your customers and your business. Thanks to Highland's intelligent content solutions that improve digital processes, innovators everywhere are able to do their thing better, whatever that thing is. Now, who doesn't like the sound of that? Highland, for innovators everywhere. Visit highland.com.